Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, feel very best of health. For too long, it's claimed people with myalgic encephalitis, or ME as it's otherwise termed, have struggled to get their illness diagnosed, understood and acknowledged. According to the charity Action for ME, there's been a huge stigma attached to it, with claims that it's not real or a psychological complaint. Sonia Chowdhury is CEO of Action for ME. Sonia, with so many misconceptions and lack of understanding, can we start by looking at what ME actually is? ME affects around 250,000 people in the UK. We know that it's more prevalent in women. We know that the 20 to 40s age range, there is a higher risk, but actually affects people of all ages, of all demographic backgrounds. It's a neurological disease. People have severe persistent fatigue, which doesn't improve with rest. That's a very different type of fatigue than the average person would experience. Other symptoms include cognitive difficulties, something that's called brain fog, concentration issues, difficulty finding words. People have problems with sleep, particularly unrefreshing sleep, hypersensitivities to light, to noise, and for some even touch, which for some people not being able to touch a loved one to cuddle a child with ME is a really painful experience. People have dizziness, vertigo, head pain, stomach issues. The list is endless. And it has a severe impact, doesn't it? It affects all aspects of their life. We know that one in four people are so severely affected that their house and often bed bound. We know that isolation is cited as the biggest issue for people with ME, and that's despite all those debilitating symptoms I've just described. Employment-wise, people are not in employment. Less than one in 10 people are well enough to be able to work full-time or continue with education or in training. We know it has an impact on the wider family. So people have to give up work to be able to care for a loved one. Children are often out of school. One piece of research indicated it was the biggest cause of health-related long-term school absence. Those statistics go on, but what sits underneath that are people whose lives have been devastated. Where are we at in understanding what causes ME? There are many things thought to cause ME. What we hear is that many people cite a viral trigger. There's various bits of research that give quite contrasting information about what's going on, but we can see that the body systems are being impacted in different ways. We've got a big DNA study at the moment, which is looking at the genetic cause of ME. And we hope that as the research progresses, we will start to learn more. You spoke there of viral triggers. What's the association between long COVID and ME? As we know, disabling long COVID was triggered by the COVID-19 infection and many millions are suffering as a result of that. What we're seeing is that there are an increasing proportion of people that meet the criteria for a diagnosis of ME. Scientifically, we don't have that understanding, but we are certainly seeing as a charity that those numbers of people with long COVID being diagnosed with ME is increasing. As I mentioned in my introduction, the ME community has faced considerable challenges over the years, but I understand the tide is turning. We know that doctors and others have found it a very difficult disease to understand, as have the general population. But there is a clinical guideline that was reviewed fairly recently. It sets out a clear process for diagnosing somebody with ME. The government are developing a draft national ME delivery plan, and that is due to be launched later this year. And there'll be 
an opportunity for engagement with the wider public before a final plan is launched. What we really need is action. And I think if that action happens, then things will really change for people with ME. So there is hope there. And this year could be a very significant year in helping us to move forward. My grateful thanks to Sonia Chowdhury. To find out more and to connect through to Action for ME, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health. It's a non-contagious chronic circulatory disorder that, despite impacting on 10 million people across the UK, suffers from poor public understanding. Sue Farrington is from the charity Scleroderma and Raynaud's UK. Raynaud's phenomenon, it's where the blood supply to the extremities is affected. That's fingers, toes, ears, nose and even nipples. So what triggers what's termed a Raynaud's attack and how might that attack manifest itself? The small blood vessels, they become extremely sensitive to changes in temperature or stress. You may notice colour changes in the fingers and toes. They can go white and then go to blue and red. And a lot of people experience numbness, tingling or pain in the fingers and toes. And then as they start to warm up, there's a real stinging or throbbing pain that happens. I read that the pain of these attacks can be like someone slamming a car door on your hands. And I see from your research, three in four patients are suffering an increased frequency of attacks thanks to the cost of living crisis. It's an incurable condition with ongoing research to improve understanding. From what little we know, who are the at-risk groups? It's not age-specific, so anyone of any age can develop primary Raynaud's. It's quite rare in young children, but more common in teenagers and then may subside and not return. For those where it comes on later in life, it certainly affects far more women than men, I would say two-thirds to a third. Keeping warm is important, and of course that's not exactly affordable for everyone who lives with Raynaud's. I understand the patient community is sharing self-help measures online that can help with reducing the frequency of attacks during these challenging times. Give us some examples making sure that your hands are warm before you put on gloves to go outside, wearing many layers rather than one thick item, and with your hands maybe wearing a pair of thin gloves before you put on an extra thick pair of gloves. Gentle exercise can help improve the circulation. And then there's other things that you can guard against. So if you want to get anything out of the fridge, if you are prone to quite serious attacks, make sure that you wear insulated gloves. When should we be talking to GP about Raynaud's? If you are having regular bouts of this, you may also start to get ulcers on your fingertips and then you absolutely must go and see your GP. There are drug therapies that can be provided. When you go on to have those more severe symptoms, it can be a sign of an underlying autoimmune condition, scleroderma. And although that's very rare, this is a condition that can affect different organs in your body. And so it's really important that you have that identified. My grateful thanks to Sue Farrington. To connect through to SRUK and find out more about Raynaud's, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. 
The charity Tinnitus UK is calling for us to protect our hearing when at work or participating in noisy leisure activities. Nick Ray is the organisation's communication manager. Noise exposure is the biggest preventable cause of tinnitus. This can be a very distressing condition and it's one for which there's no cure. Is exposure to loud noise the only cause of tinnitus? No, tinnitus can be caused by many things, some of which we're not entirely sure about, but we know that it can be connected to hearing loss. It can happen after an ear infection or even COVID-19 infection. It can be triggered by stress or anxiety, even something as simple as an earwax buildup. So there are many causes, but the cause that seems to be most common when we surveyed our members and people living with tinnitus was noise exposure. For those of us that aren't familiar with tinnitus, it's the sensation of a sound in the ear or head not produced by an external source. It can affect people of any age. For some, it will be temporary. For others, they'll have to live with it. The sound can be of any pitch or type, continuous or intermittent. It can take a variety of forms, such as buzzing, ringing, whistling, hissing. Sometimes you only notice these sounds when it's very quiet. Others find that the sound can be loud enough to intrude on everyday life. According to your statistics, Nick, how many people live with tinnitus? Up to one in three of us will experience it at some points in our lives. One in seven adults seem to be living with tinnitus on a long-term basis. And then it looks like about one in 30 children of primary school age have what they call clinically significant tinnitus. So it's incredibly common. I know in most instances, tinnitus isn't an indication of anything more serious, but it can be. And I know you would advise that you should speak to your doctor if tinnitus persists, who may then refer you on for more specialised help. Where are things at with regards to treatments? Well, we have a number of successful treatments, but everybody's treatment programme is going to be different. Everybody's tinnitus is different. And a lot of these treatments take a bit of time. The things that we know work are, particularly if you've got a hearing loss, then obviously a hearing aid is first point of call because that can be very helpful. Using background sound, sometimes called sound therapy, can just be having the radio on low, an app playing while you fall asleep. Relaxation techniques can be really powerful. If you practice regularly, little and often is good. Mindfulness techniques seem to be showing great promise. Speaking to people, whether that's formally through cognitive behavioural therapy counselling or going to a support group and talking to other people like yourself. And we would always say that to people, stay away from some of these miracle cures that you might see advertised on the internet because there's no evidence behind any of those. So sadly, not a pill, not a supplement. It does come down to some of these techniques. We open this report talking about prevention and loud noise. Your new report shows four out of 10 people exposed to noise at work never wear hearing protection. Only 23% of people attending music events take measures to protect their hearing. And I see there's a whole range of things from hair dryers to tube trains that can, with just a few minutes of exposure, be detrimental. Give me some ideas of what's available that can help protect our hearing. Cotton wool doesn't hack it, tissues don't hack it, fingers in your ears don't hack it. You do need to buy proper protection and that doesn't have to be expensive. Foam earplugs for things where you don't need the clarity of sound. So, you know, if you're using your chainsaw, if you're using your lawnmower, 
You can buy something called musician's earplugs, which have a type of attenuation called flat attenuation. So the volume drops, but you hear the clarity of sound. If you're going out to a lot of noisy environments, or maybe you're a professional or semi-pro musician, for example, you can get fitted earplugs and molded to you. So they're really comfortable. You can wear for a long time, which is a really good investment when you think of how much even a hearing aid can cost or how uncomfortable living with tinnitus may be. My grateful thanks to Nick Ray. To find out more and to connect through to Tinnitus UK, log on to our website, www.wordonhealth.com. That's www.wordonhealth.com. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health. 